Um, next up is Dr. Andrew Alexis. Uh, he's the director of Skin of Color of the Skin of Color Center at St. Luke's Roosevelt Hospital in New York City and an assistant clinical professor of dermatology at Columbia University. Uh, after receiving his medical degree and master's of public health from Columbia, uh, he completed his derm residency at the Wheel Cornell Medical Center, uh, followed by a fellowship in dermat uh, pharmacology at uh, New York's University School of Medicine. He's an investigator in numerous clinical studies and widely published in peer-reviewed literature and a frequent lecturer at dermatology meetings. He serves as chair of the AAD Diversity Task Force and treasurer secretary of the Skin of Color Society. He's past president of the New York Academy of Medical Section on Dermatology and has served as treasurer of the Dermato uh, Dermatologic Society of Greater New York. Please welcome Dr. Alexis. Thank you for the, uh, for the introduction and the invitation, uh, Lauren. Uh, today I'm going to be uh, providing an overview and hopefully uh, provide some practical, uh, practical uh, pointers as far as managing your patients with darker skin types. Uh, I have worked with uh, a variety of different companies, either as a speaker or an advisor or a consultant, and these are shown here. I will also be mentioning some off-label uh, uses of uh, medications. Now, the term skin of color is a, is a, is a term that's used to uh, describe the broad range of darker skin types that characterize the various uh, non-white racial and ethnic groups. This includes people of African descent, East Asian, South Asian, Latino descent, Middle Eastern groups, and other uh, uh, groups around the world that would be characterized as having increased melanin in their, in their skin, or melanocompetent individuals, as, as is sometimes uh, described. From a global perspective, people with darkly pigmented skin uh, already make up the majority of the world's population, and with projected growth in, uh, in parts of uh, Asia and, uh, and Africa, this, this, this is uh, expected to continue to increase. Here in the United States, there's growing interest in this segment of the population as it is also rapidly growing. And you can see that, uh, focusing on the, uh, the, the graph on the, on the right, by the year 2050, it's estimated, according to the U.S. Census Bureau, that the people who describe themselves as belonging to the various non-white racial or ethnic groups are projected to make up about 50% of the U.S. population in 2050, should the current demographic trends continue. And you can see in red that uh, uh, the Hispanic population, that represents the Hispanic population, that's, that's projected to be the largest increase over this time period. However, each of the groups, including uh, people who belong to other, the other category, which includes mixed racial her heritage, are projected to increase. So as dermatologists and dermatology PAs, uh, um, it's, it's, uh, it's increasingly important to understand any nuances uh, to treatment of uh, common skin conditions in, uh, in darker skin individuals. And uh, what we see is that because of the interplay of structural and functional differences, cultural uh, variations in terms of skin and hair care practices, as well as cultural differences in perceptions of, of beauty, we do see differences in the epidemiology, the uh, clinical presentation, and the quality of life impact of various uh, dermatologic disorders. So what are the leading dermatologic disorders for which uh, patients with darker skin come and see, seek a derma dermatologist or dermatology PA? 
Well, there are a number of, of studies in the literature that are primarily uh, practice surveys. Uh, so we're just reviewing, uh, reviewing the most frequent diagnoses over a certain time period. And we did a similar uh, practice survey at the Skin of Color Center in New York City, where I work. And we looked, at, uh, we, we looked at what are the most frequent diagnoses that we see in a one-year period in the various groups. And in our uh, black population, this includes anyone of African descent, African-American, Afro-Caribbean, from the African continent directly, anyone of uh, African descent, uh, we found that uh, uh, acne, dyschromia, so any uh, disorder of pigmentation excluding vitiligo, and eczema were the top three uh, uh, diagnoses seen in a one-year period. We saw the same top three diagnoses in our Latino population, as well as our Asian population. Um, however, we also see that alopecia was a leading uh, diagnosis among the uh, patients of African descent, uh, which is something that was not seen in our Caucasian group, for example, as a, as a, as a top five reason. So what I've done is the, the, there's different colors here, and the color coding here means that I'm dividing conditions that are common, that affect any pe people of any, any background. They're common in all of our, our, our patient populations, but have some differences in their clinical presentation and or treatment, and that's uh, shown in red. So I'm going to be covering common conditions like acne, eczema, and uh, seborrheic dermatitis, and, and highlighting some of the clinical differences when they present in darker skin. But then there are conditions that uh, present uh, sort of disproportionately. They disproportionately affect patients with darker skin. And this includes the disorders of pigmentation, uh, some specific alopecias, and pseudo-folliculitis, even though it says folliculitis uh, because it's based on ICD-9 codes, pseudo-folliculitis as a condition that uh, primarily affects patients with darker skin. So we'll begin with uh, common disorders that have uh, unique clinical presentations in darker skin. Again, we're having the same, uh, I think, the same issue with, the, uh, with the, the brightness of the projector, but hopefully you can make out uh, on the slides here the differences between uh, the uh, example of, uh, of uh, eczema on the, uh, on the left side, eczema on a light-skinned patient, and eczema in an African-American patient on the, on the right-hand side. And one of the features that I'm trying to show here is that the, the tendency towards follicular accentuation. And also it's been described that sometimes the, there can be exaggerated li uh, lichenification uh, and scaling in a, in a, in a dark-skinned patient. And so you can see these little, little follicular uh, papules that are coalescing into, into a, into a like, uh, lichenified scaly plaque on the right-hand side. Sometimes you can see the, the uh, follicular papules of eczema in the absence of some of the other uh, characteristic signs of eczema, in the absence of lichenification and scale, just follicular papules. And this can be seen uh, more commonly in, in the darker skin patient, especially those of African descent. Seborrheic dermatitis. Uh, the, the variant of seborrheic dermatitis called annular sebderm or petaloid sebderm where, where you have uh, an annular-shaped uh, scaly erythematous uh, thin plaques uh, is more commonly seen in, uh, in the darker-skinned patient, especially those of African descent. And uh, uh, hopefully you can make that out on the slide on the right. When faced with these annular, uh, annular plaques on the face, uh, one has to consider other uh, annular lesions in the differential diagnosis, including tinea facii, sarcoid, less commonly, discoid lupus, and secondary syphilis. But usually uh, uh, the diagnosis of seborrheic dermatitis is very easily made when you look for scalp involvement in, uh, the, the other, and the classic distribution of, uh, of, uh, of the erythema and scale. But one should be mindful of these other uh, diagnoses that can present with annular lesions on the face. 
when seborrheic dermatitis often presents with just hypopigmentation in the, in the uh, classic seborrheic areas of the glabella and palpebra area and the nasolabial folds. So the patient comes in just with, uh, with uh, hypopigmented patches in these areas. You can't even make out much scale. You certainly don't see any erythema. And this post-inflammatory this, uh, this, uh, post hyperpigmentation is, is, what, is, is what, what is seen. So a patient like this can be treated with, uh, with uh, a topical antifungal uh, or a topical calcineurin inhibitor. Um, and it does take about two months or more uh, before, uh, before uh, the, the pigment tends to come back. When faced with uh, such a patient, I always like to use a Woods light to differentiate this from, from vitiligo because sometimes you end up finding that what seems to be uh, seborrheic dermatitis, you, you put a woods, woods light on it and you see that these patches are not hypopigmented, but they're depigmented. And then you might be able to find other areas on the body that have uh, vitiligo. And that's what happened with this patient. She had uh, these light patches in, in seborrheic areas, but turned out to have vitiligo. So useful just to use the Woods light to differentiate. When seborrheic dermatitis occurs on the scalp, this is really an area, this is a classic example of where there are nuances to, to treatment when in some of the uh, darker skin racial and eth racial ethnic groups. Uh, and uh, when it comes to seborrheic dermatitis on the scalp, particularly in women of African descent, um, it's important to take into account that, that patient's hair care regimen. And so it's not, it wouldn't be appropriate to tell that patient to wash their hair uh, three times a week with a, with a medicated shampoo um, like we would uh, with, uh, with most of our other patients uh, because hair, hair washing frequency uh, it tends to be much less in, uh, in uh, African-American women, uh, usually once a week or once even uh, less frequently than that, once every other week sometimes. So, what I typically recommend is a once-weekly washing with an anti-seborrheic shampoo. I personally like cyclo cycloperox shampoo. I think the vehicle somehow is just not, not as drying as uh, selenium sulfide and some of the others, uh, and ketoconazole. So I like cycloperox uh, shampoo once a week. And asking the patient, do you, you know, do you wash your hair in the salon or, or at home, since many women do, do do it at the salon. And if they do it at the salon, just tell them to bring the bottle of the, of the prescription shampoo to the salon. Have them wash with that once, and then the subsequent shampooing so they can use their regular shampoo and deep conditioner. Um, the night before uh, um, hair washing, uh, a nice uh, treatment uh, that's usually qu quite uh, well received by the patient is uh, the use of the topical fluocinolone acetonide in the peanut oil base. Um, uh, in other words, Dermasmooth uh, being the brand name, applied to, to the scalp the night before and left o overnight. Uh, because of that peanut oil base, it, it does have a, uh, it, it tends to be quite well well received by, by this patient population in terms of not drying the hair and adding a little bit of uh, oil to the, to the hair shafts. Um, in addition to these one, once weekly uh, treatment, uh, you may also need to use uh, uh, a topical corticosteroid uh, periodically during the week. And as long as you uh, make sure you pick a vehicle for this steroid that's appropriate for that per person's uh, preferences and in, in, in hair care practices. And so this is just a rough guide, and I think you'll be receiving a handout uh, with, uh, with all of this information. And this is, there's no one-size-fits-all. These are just suggestions that, that in my experience, tend to, tend to be well-received. And in women who have uh, uh, chemical relaxers, and we'll go into the various hair, hair care practices in, in African-American women later in the lecture, but women with chemical relaxers tend to uh, 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 like to use 
the lotion vehicles or oil-based vehicles or the foam vehicle, especially emollient foam. For thermal straightened hair, so that's like hot comb or pressing the hair, um, this is a, the, the straightening effect will be reversed by, by water exposure. So you want to, the bottom line is you want to avoid solutions uh, because uh, the, the water content will, will make the hair frizzy and reverse the straightening effect. So you favor oil-based and emollient foams for, the, for, this, for this group. Patients with natural hair, you can pretty much pick any, any of the vehicles just depending on the patient's preference. Pityriasis rosea, another example of a common condition where there are unique uh, presentations in, in the darker skin patient, especially those of African descent. Uh, uh, on the right-hand side, hopefully you can make out that this presentation of pityriasis rosea is an example of the papular variant, and, and many patients can, can, can present with predominantly uh, papules uh, all, all over the trunk, and very few of the classic oval, uh, scaly erythematous plaques that we tip typically look for for pityriasis rosea. In fact, uh, a recent study uh, in the pediatric journal, Archives of Pediatrics and Adolescent Medicine, uh, looked at uh, 50 African-American children with pityriasis rosea. And in that group, this was out in Michigan in the Detroit area, uh, they had uh, about uh, one-third of these patients uh, had only papular lesions in their presentation. And uh, so that sometimes there was the, the presentation can be really exuberant, a really uh, profound uh, number of these papules that are, that are quite inflamed. And, you, and it's just basically pattern recognition uh, that sort of makes you think of pityriasis rosea. The, these, the distribution of these are sort of in, you can, if you look, focus on the, uh, on the back area and the central area of the back, it sort of looks like a Christmas tree pattern is sort of along the lines of cleavage. Psoriasis, another common condition that does have some, some differences in terms of the presentation in darker skin. First of all, the erythema is just more difficult to see in, in a type 6 uh, uh, phototype. Uh, and uh, so one can just see, rather than the salmon pink uh, scaly plaques, you just see the, the silvery white scale of the plaques. Also, the, uh, the, once the plaques resolves, there is, the, the resolve, uh, there, there is uh, a tendency for uh, pigmentary abnormalities, including post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation, as you can see on this man's back. Um, in some cases, the, the plaques of psoriasis can sort of have this uh, slightly violaceous hue and this, and, and this uh, uh, heaped up scale, which might make you think of hypertrophic lichen planus. Uh, but uh, looking for the other, uh, uh, looking for the characteristic distribution and other signs and symptoms of psoriasis can help with the diagnosis. Rarely would you have to biopsy to confirm. Acne, another uh, extremely common condition that's the number one reason for uh, patients to see a dermatologist, in, according to many practice surveys, regardless of racial and ethnic group. But a key difference in darker skin, of course, is the tendency to present with post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation. And the hyperpigmentation tends to be uh, of equal or greater importance to the patient than the acne itself. And many of these patients actually come in because of the hyperpigmentation, and they describe, they often describe these hyperpigmented macules as scars or uneven skin tone, and that's usually the, the main reason why they came in. So uh, this hyperpigmentation can often be of uh, greater severity uh, than the, the acne itself that you see in the office because of the tendency for the hyperpigmentation to last many, many months long after the, uh, the acne has resolved. So it's important to, to recognize that as being an important, uh, as, a, as being a driving force for patients coming into the office and making sure you actually address the hyperpigmentation as well as the, uh, the acne. 
There's also a higher risk for, for keloid formation in darker skin, as we all know. And so in the context of acne, in moderate to severe cases of acne, primarily truncal, uh, there is a higher risk for, uh, for keloids to arise. There's also uh, some cultural factors that, depending on the specific uh, racial and ethnic group, there may be some cultural factors that are prevalent that may be contributing or exacerbating the, uh, the, uh, the, the acne. First of all, in Af the African American community, there's the frequent use of cocoa butter. Uh, and uh, it's a wide, there's a widely held belief that cocoa butter evens the skin tone. And so many patients are applying cocoa butter on their faces uh, to treat the hyperpigmentation that the acne caused but in turn exacerbating their acne since cocoa butter is, is quite comedogenic. Similarly, uh, using cover-up uh, cosmetics, uh, use, using thicker uh, uh, cosmetics to conceal the, uh, the hyperpigmentation uh, is uh, frequently seen and this can, can in turn worsen the acne if it's a comedogenic product. To a lesser extent nowadays, but more, it was much more uh, common uh, a few decades ago, uh, the use of greasier uh, uh, hair products uh, that, are used to, uh, that are frequently used to add uh, sheen and improve the manageability of, of uh, afro-textured hair. Uh, luckily, the more popular products nowadays are less greasy and less occlusive, but you still see patients from time to time that are using thicker uh, hair, hair pomades, and this can contribute to, uh, to uh, pomade acne, primarily on the forehead and the temples. And in some groups, this is primarily, at least in my experience, seen in Im patients who are immigrants from, from uh, Sub-Saharan Africa. And in my practice, this is usually from Nigeria, Ghana, Senegal, throughout West, West Africa, at least in my population in New York. And some of them are using various fade creams on their faces and other body parts to lighten their complexion. And many of these contain corticosteroids, including class one and class two corticosteroids. And these are bought at ethnic beauty supply stores in many cities all around the country or on the internet without a prescription. And all of these, uh, all of the tubes shown in this slide here were brought in by a single patient from Senegal and all of them contain clobetazole. Each one of those tubes contain clobetazole, and she was using it all over her face and her chest to try and lighten her skin tone. And what made it, forced us to, uh, what made us uh, ask her to bring in her products is that she clearly had steroid acne, but we just didn't know where it was coming from. And it took repeated questioning and, 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 uh, and pushing her to bring her in her products before we could find the cause. So if you see someone who has characteristic steroid acne, and, and there might be somebody who's uh, practicing skin bleaching, make sure that you have them bring in all their products and so you can educate them and discontinue them. A study uh, done here in Washington, D.C. by Rabat Halder, the chairman at uh, Howard University, uh, looked at 30 African-American female patients with acne and did biopsies on all of them on their face and found that there was marked inflammation uh, histopathologically, uh, even in clinically non-inflammatory lesions. So even when biopsying comedones, he found uh, uh, a considerable amount of inflammation histopathologically. And this subclinical inflammation may contribute to the prevalence of uh, uh, post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation. Later, since subsequent to the study, similar uh, uh, studies have been done in uh, white skin and uh, have also shown subclinical uh, inflammation. Uh, so it's not doesn't seem to be unique to uh, darker skin. So. With that background, what are the goals when, treat, when faced with a patient with uh, a darker skin patient with acne? First of all, because of the higher risk for post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation 
and in some cases, for the more severe uh, cases of acne, more uh, a risk for keloids and hypertrophic scars, it's particularly important to address the inflammatory component, not to undertreat, to aggressively reduce the inflammation. We want to eliminate any contributing factors, of some of these cultural factors I mentioned in some groups, and we certainly want to prescribe a regimen that's going to avoid any or minimize any irritation, because if we induce uh, an irritant dermatitis, that in turn can lead to more hyperpigmentation or hypopigmentation. And once it comes to, uh, when it comes to the hyperpigmentation, we want to be able to come up with a regimen that will not only address the acne, but will also improve the PIH. And so when it comes to our treatment options, luckily all of the, the FDA-approved treatment options for acne uh, have, can, are appropriate for darker skin as well. They, there's lots of uh, published experience and anecdotal experience with each and every one of these agents that we would use on any patient. However, there are, of course, differences in tolerability, uh, especially when, you, when it comes to selecting different vehicles and concentration. And I'm going to focus on the, the retinoid class primarily because of their particular importance in controlling both the acne and the hyperpigmentation. The, uh, the use of retinoids for hyperpigmentation was first shown um, in, in, a, in a nice way in the literature uh, in the early 90s, published in the New England Journal of Medicine, where tretinoin 0.1% cream was used over a 40-week period. This is a placebo-controlled study, and we can see um, a marked improvement in the hyperpigmentation over this 40-week period, just using tretinoin 0.1% cream alone. However, half of these patients, literally half, 50% of them developed a retinoid dermatitis in this study. A more recent study with tazeratine cream, 0.1%, uh, showed uh, improvement in both active acne and hyperpigmentation in darker skin groups, as shown here in this over an 18-week period. However, of all the retinoids, the one that has the greatest experience in the literature in with darker skin populations is adapalene. And adapalene generally is, is as we all know, is the, is the, the, the least uh, irritating or the most best tolerated uh, of the retinoids in general. And uh, these are two studies in, in different darker skin groups, in uh, African patients and in uh, Japanese. When it comes to uh, approaching our acne patients with darker skin, uh, adjunctive therapies are also useful. A moisturizer with sunscreen, the reason for the sunscreen is to help minimize the UV-induced melanogenesis, or so exacerbation of the hyperpigmentation from sun exposure. So recommending a moisturizer that has sunscreen of SPF 30 along with their regimen is useful. You may want to consider bleaching agents for persistent hyperpigmented macules using hydroquinone 4% or azelaic acid as a treatment for both the acne and the hyperpigmentation since azelaic acid does have some, um, some uh, uh, lightening effects or has some efficacy when treating hyperpigmentation. Kojic acid is uh, an alternative uh, uh, that can be used for, uh, as a bleaching agent. And chemical peels, as long as they are superficial and carefully done uh, to avoid excessive injury to, to the skin, can, can be used safely in darker skin. And when it comes to chemical peels in, in, in darker skin types, uh, you, the, the ones where, that uh, I find most useful and safe would be salicylic acid uh, beginning at 20% and, if tolerated, increasing to 30%. Glycolic acid can also be used, and typically in the 30 to 50 percent range is, 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 uh, is the safest uh, uh, range of concentrations to use. And always begin low, always begin at the lowest concentration and work up as tolerated. It's also key to stop 
have the, ret have the patient stop their topical retinoid one week prior to the peel. And that's the only times that I've had issues with this where a uh, patient inadvertently forgot to stop the retinoid and I didn't realize that. And, uh, and then you end up with a deeper peel than anticipated and you can run the risk of dyschromia. This is an example of a salicylic acid peel. You see the characteristic white uh, precipitate on the patient's skin. Um, and uh, um, the, what I suggest is a, applying a very light layer first, not so thick like shown here, uh, a light layer first, observing the patient for about 20, 30 seconds, asking them, are you feeling any, any stinging, burning, uh, and observing for any erythema? And if tolerated, then, then apply an, another, another layer and work your way up slowly. When it comes to actual evidence of these working, uh, when, you, when you look for published evidence for the chemical peels, it's, kind, it's quite lacking. Uh, but these are a few, this is uh, one example in the literature of, uh, of uh, a study with Asian patients who, uh, who responded uh, to uh, salicylic acid chemical peels uh, for both acne and hyperpigmentation. So let's uh, just do a case to, uh, to, to illustrate. This is a, 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 a patient, a, a young woman who's African-American, type 6 skin. She presents with primarily uh, comedones and a few small inflamed papules on the forehead and uh, a lot of post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation. So with this kind of distribution, you're, you're, you're thinking of uh, the possibility of pomade acne because of the hair products being comedogenic hair products involving the forehead and, um, and producing this, this presentation. So in order to uh, address this, uh, you want to obviously discontinue any hair care products that are, that are comedogenic. And the main culprits are those that have a high petrolatum content or mineral oil content. And uh, you should advise the patient to apply the hair products at least an inch behind the, the hairline and, and, uh, and try to get it as far away from the forehead as possible and keep the hair off the face. However, it's not enough just to tell them to stop using what they're using. It's important to recommend alternatives uh, because they're, they're still going to need something to uh, help uh, uh, style and make the hair more manageable and add sheen to the hair. So telling them to use, uh, recommending uh, silicone-based hair products tends to be a, a useful approach. And so asking the patient to look for products that contain cyclomethicone or dimethicone. Uh, and these are just a few brands that are commonly found and uh, um, uh, that I tend to recommend to my patients for this. And this should be in the handout. So when it comes to actual treating the acne in this, in this patient, uh, topical retinoid will be ideal because we want to address the, the, the comedones and we want to address the hyperpigmentation. Uh, so a, a well-tolerated retinoid in, uh, applied nightly would be perfect for this. Uh, you may want to consider uh, hydroquinone for any persistent large hyperpigmented macules. Uh, and if, if, if needed, uh, chemical peels can be incorporated. Uh, as an alternative, azelaic acid would be a way to manage both the acne and the hyperpigmentation as well. However, in my experience, I just don't find it to be as efficacious as, as, uh, as the retinoids. What about this patient who has more severe acne and uh, hyperpigmentation? Well, we definitely want to be aggressive in reducing the inflammatory uh, component here, and this patient with such severe uh, acne is obviously going to need uh, oral uh, antibiotics, and in addition, uh, topical uh, benzoyl peroxide. So we want to, want to reduce the inflammatory component. We also want to address the hyperpigmentation, and we can do that effectively with a, with a retinoid. And we have to be mindful of, of, uh, of irritation and avoiding irritation, which could, could induce more dyschromia. It's also important to take a minute to explain to the patient that, that, that the, explain the difference between the acne and the hyperpigmentation and that you are committed to addressing both conditions and that you're 
prescribing a regimen that's going to improve not just the acne, but also the hyperpigmentation. That instills a, a sense of confidence in the patient for, for, on the patient's part, and they know that you, you are committed to taking care of the hyperpigmentation, which is of utmost importance to many of them. You may want to consider chemical peels after uh, getting the acne under control. Uh, and that's what I did in this, this case, and you can see that this patient responded uh, after a series of, after uh, uh, four months of oral minocycline, topical tazeratine at night, and a topical benzoyl peroxide formulation in the morning. He also had a series of salicylic acid peels, four of them, beginning at the third month. And over a 10-month period, you can see marked improvement in both his acne and his hyperpigmentation. But note that it took 10 months, so it's a very, it, it's a much longer time uh, as far as reaching the endpoint, because the endpoint is not just the acne, but also the hyperpigmentation. So moving on to post-inflammatory, I mean to uh, pseudo-folliculitis barbae, extremely common condition that's reported to affect 45 to 83 percent of, uh, of black men. Uh, historically, it's been the source of racial tensions in the military. Uh, it's uh, clearly cosmetically di uh, disfiguring, and it, it, it still remains a, a ch treatment challenge. This is the classic presentation of it with the follicular papules in the, in the beard area, especially the neck, and associated hyperpigmentation. Um, and uh, in severe cases, you can also have keloids develop in the, in, the, in the beard area as a result of this. Also, while we think of this as a condition that primarily affects men, it's certainly very common in, in women with hirsutism. And I see uh, at least half of my patients are, are women with, uh, who pluck or shave the hair under the chin and develop the uh, features of, post of uh, PFB and post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation. In a survey that we published uh, a few years ago at our, at, at our center, uh, it was shown that among the men who had uh, PFB, it's interesting to see how many of them use methods such as tweezing or uh, electrolysis or uh, depilatory as a method of hair removal. And I think the tweezing also contributes to the hyperpigmentation because of the trauma of digging out the embedded hairs and trying to yank them out from the, from the root, and I try and have patients discontinue this. When it comes to the pathogenesis, we all know that this is a pseudo-folliculitis, not a true folliculitis, and that is it's a foreign body uh, inflammatory reaction to the uh, hair shaft that re-enters the skin. The hair shaft can re-enter from the, from the uh, outside in, as shown here, called extra-follicular penetration, or it, could even, it can actually penetrate the uh, epidermis and dermis without even exiting the skin surface, and that's called uh, trans-follicular penetration. And, uh, uh, let's use this case uh, to illustrate the uh, 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 favorable approach to uh, treating such patients. This is a 29-year-old man, African-American with type 6 skin, and he's got uh, severe PFB and uh, post-inflammatory post hyperpigmentation. So first step is you can offer to, to patients the option of discontinuing shaving or growing a beard because uh, after about uh, six to eight weeks of, of uh, of, of beard growth, uh, the embedded hair is just spontaneously released, and, and in the majority of cases, there's resolution of the problem. Of course, this is not, not an option for, for actually the majority of men who choose to have a clean-shaven face. But with regards to the discontinua discontinuation of shaving, some of the evidence for this comes from this old study from JAMA in the late 70s where uh, uh, 96 U.S. Air Force men with PFB uh, were, at, were made to uh, grow their beard for one month, and uh, they also used uh, a polyester cleansing pad twice daily. 
After the one-month period, they were allowed to shave with electric hair clippers, leaving just a, a little bit of growth, uh, 0.5 to 1 millimeters of, uh, of growth. And uh, it was shown that this uh, had 91 of 96, or 96 percent of these subjects uh, had resolution of their PFB. But for those that do need a clean-shaven uh, face, uh, another uh, option, alter alternative to shaving, will be the use of chemical depilatories. And these are basically come, come in two forms, barium sulfide, that's a misprint, should say sulfide, barium sulfide powder or calcium thioglycolate. And these work by uh, di weakening the disulfide bonds in the hair keratin, and then the, the hair shafts are removed from the skin surface with a blunt in instrument like a, like a tongue depressor. Problem here, this is very effective, this is, this is a useful strategy. The problem is the very high risk of irritant contact dermatitis. So I recommend patients, you, you know, do, the, do a test area first and, and, and be very mindful of limiting the contact time uh, on, and to avoid any, uh, any significant uh, irritation here, which would then lead to uh, dyschromia. These are the two, some of the, the two uh, uh, most common, commonly found uh, Examples of uh, depilatories, this is uh, the cream shave, which is uh, calcium thioglycolate, and then the traditional powder, which is barium sulfide. Now, when it comes to uh, shaving, uh, those that choose to shave, uh, uh, just modifying shaving practices can be, can be useful. And there's traditionally single blade uh, uh, razors have been what's been recommended over multiple blade razors. And this is based on uh, one study from uh, 1981 that used a foil-guarded uh, uh, single-blade razor. And the thought here is that the single-blade razor, there's less chance for uh, transfollicular penetration. And this is an example of the most well-known uh, um, single-blade uh, razor that's uh, marketed for pseudofolliculitis barbae. And uh, it has a polymer coating and a foil guard to keep the blade slightly off the skin surface to prevent hair from being trimmed too shortly and, and, and then having the tip embed itself. So this, this, this is quite useful, and I still recommend this to, to uh, most of my patients. However, there is uh, new data that, that uh, it's not been published in the main literature, but it's just a white paper that you can find on the, the website of the manufacturer of the, of the laser, I mean of the, uh, of the razor, I should say, uh, where uh, the, uh, Gillette, which manufactures one of the popular multi-blade uh, razors, um, found that in men with PFB, there was no worsening of their PFB when using their multi-blade razor. However, you know, the, no comparative trials uh, have been done, and so we really need more research into this area to really have concrete recommendations as far as what, what the optimal uh, uh, type of razor to use in shaving practices should be. In any event, this is what I typically give. I give a patient a handout that basically has most of this information on it, um, and ask the patient to wash the face prior to shaving with a mild cleanser and a, and a face cloth gently, uh, and using it in a circular motion to gently release the embedded hairs. Try, ask them to avoid uh, digging in there and yanking hairs from the root with tweezers, like many patients do, inducing trauma and, and, and pigmentary abnormalities. Um, I, I have them uh, use a moisturizing shaving cream or gel, and uh, I do use the single blade razors and uh, shave in the direction of the growth, that's with the grain, and avoiding stretching or, or pulling of the skin, uh, which would uh, favor more transfollicular penetration. So you, you want to avoid uh, the stretching or pulling of the skin. Post-shaving, 
application of a benzoyl peroxide clindamycin uh, product or topical dapsone, as uh, I now use uh, for the anti-inflammatory effect, or in very inflamed cases, using a, a low-potency topical corticosteroid like desonide uh, lotion uh, two, three times a week uh, to control the, the severe inflammation. I give almost all patients topical retinoid nightly uh, uh, and, that, and in combination with everything else that seems to be useful. However, for resistant cases, this is where we have to resort to procedural uh, approaches, uh, in-office procedures, and we can consider chemical peels or, more effectively, uh, laser hair removal, and I'll briefly go through that. This is an example of salicylic acid chemical peels being used for PFB, um, and you can see an improvement in both in the papules and the hyperpigmentation after a series of salicylic acid peels here. However, what's really revolutionized the treatment of, of PFB is the use of uh, lasers uh, to um, um, reduce, the, reduce the hair. And, and as long as the correct laser is used, the correct laser wavelength and the appropriate fluence and other settings are used, we can do this safely and effectively in darker skin. And it's particularly important to, to select the appropriate laser and parameters because the higher risk for uh, complications when using lasers in darker skin. On the left is an example of IPL, intense pulse light, being used for hair removal in a uh, uh, type, somebody with uh, type 5 skin, and that induced uh, burns and, and hyperpigmentation. And on the right is an example of hypopigmentation from, from uh, uh, inappropriate laser being, being used. The key tips to uh, using laser hair removal safely in darker skin are to use longer wavelengths, lower fluences, longer pulse durations, and, and increased epidermal cooling. The reason for the longer wavelengths is we want deeper penetration down to the, we're targeting the melanin in the uh, bulb of the uh, hair follicle, so we want to maximize the absorption of the laser energy down in the, in the bulb of the follicle and minimize absorption up in the epidermis by epidermal melanin. So um, in terms of what examples of uh, longer wavelengths we, we can consider, first is the 810 uh, uh, nanometer diode laser, which would be appropriate for the light brown uh, patients or type 4 up to type 5. However, for the, uh, a darker skin patient, uh, including type 6s, there's no question the long pulse 1064 is the, is the safest and would be the treatment of choice. And this, uh, if you could just click on that, that image, uh, then we can start the video here. This is a short video of using a long pulse 1064 laser with contact cooling. And so when you've got the contact cooling type, you have to cool the area before delivering the pulse of laser energy and taking your time to make sure you've adequately cooled the area you're about to treat is key. So going slowly, as you can see. And when there's uh, intense, uh, absorption of heat and, then, and resulting in a plume of smoke, you can go back with the chilled hand, hand uh, piece and cool the area after that. And that's a nice way to help minimize uh, uh, any thermal injury from, from the laser. So going back to this patient uh, in terms of, of uh, how, uh, how I ended up approaching him, because uh, he's got darker, he's got type 6 skin with severe hyperpigmentation and very dense follicular distribution of coarse black hairs. I, I, I selected the 1064 uh, anti-YAG with a low fluence and long pulse duration for his treatment. And I began with a very low fluence, relatively speaking, 20 joules per centimeter squared, 30 millisecond pulse duration. And by the eighth treatment, it had increased the, the fluence up to 50 because of the, the let the reduction in density of, uh, of, of his hairs. Um, and uh, 
concomitantly I used hydroquinone 4% cream. And you can see if you focus on the neck region, uh, a marked improvement in the papules and the hyperpigmentation after eight treatments. Finally, I'm going to cover uh, uh, alopecias uh, that are, are more commonly found in uh, women of African descent. And when approaching this area, it's important to have a basic understanding of the common hair care practices in this population. The most common hairstyle hair we're going to see is hair that is straightened, and the hair can be straightened either with the use of chemical relaxers, uh, containing some, mostly uh, containing sodium hydroxide, or the so-called lye-based relaxers. These are applied to, uh, to the new, uh, to the proximal uh, hair shafts, and permanently disrupt the disulfide bonds in the hair shaft and lead to a straightened hair. There's also no lye relaxers, which are guanidine hydroxide instead of sodium hydroxide. And uh, the hair can also be straightened with the use of heat, such as with the hot comb or with a flat iron or with, with a blow dryer that's applied uh, uh, with very high heat, uh, very close to the hair and combed out. And this temporarily disrupts the hydrogen bonds in the hair shaft. And this straightening effect is reversed by water. So with water exposure, the hair reverts back to curly. The hair uh, can be extended with uh, the use of braids, with human hair or artificial hair extensions added. Um, you can have weaves put in, which can either be glued in, as shown here with that bottle of glue, or, with, or sewn in to a track. The hair can be put into short twists or into uh, dreadlocks. And these, are, obviously, there's way more uh, styles than this, but these are, this covers a lot of the, 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 the more popular styles. So and, this, and, and the next slide is just a short clip from a, from a, video, a, a movie by uh, the comedian Chris Rock uh, called Good Hair. And it's a very humorous, for those of you who haven't seen it, it's a very humorous look at uh, uh, hair care practices in this community. I'll just show this. So what's in your hair now? A few things. This hair. Underneath the other hair is thick hair. This is a weave right now. This is a weave. That's my edges and everything. I have pieces that are kind of like, you know, like extensions. Right now I have clips in my hair. I've attached um, two pieces here because I want a little more fullness. Mine is a one unit. Like, like that. <laughs> So clearly there's often more than meets the eye when, when, when looking at uh, patients' hair. And the thing is, uh, uh, patients aren't really going to tell you what they're doing unless you ask. And it's helpful to have an understanding of these basic hair care practices. And so you can speak the same language and then really establish a good rapport between you and the patient. And it really shows you understand uh, some of these cultural issues. And it, you'll be more effective when it comes to making your treatment recommendations on modifying hair care practices. So what hair care problems do we, see, what uh, hair disorders do we see more commonly in uh, women of African descent? Well, number one, traction, uh, hair, fragility, hair, hair fragility, the patient that comes in that just says their, their hair uh, uh, doesn't grow beyond a certain length because it just keeps breaking, and then CCCA. And I'm gonna cover the, all of these br uh, briefly. So traction alopecia, very characteristic presentation. It's very easy to make that diagnosis with the, with the, thinning, uh, the, the thinning hair on the frontotemporal scalp, especially in association with hairstyles like braids. Um, and uh, the key is to um, address 
the source of the, of the attraction, when braids is an obvious source, but less obvious sources include uh, the use of a tight headscarf worn at night. Some, sometimes uh, a hair, headscarf, which is very commonly worn by African-American women, if it's very tight and over a long period of time, that can, that's enough to produce uh, uh, traction on the uh, frontal temporal scalp. Tight rollers are another, another source, potential source, that may not be obvious. So we want to work on limiting the mechanical tension on the hair shafts by avoiding uh, uh, the, these hair care practices, or at least minimizing the tension associated with them. And when it comes to women who are wearing braids, if you ask them, you know, when you get your braids done, do, do, is your forehead tight, or do, is your scalp sore or tender for the first couple of days? And almost all, all the time, people patients will, will smile and, and nod their head. And that's a clear sign that the braids are too tight. And so they really have to work with the, with the, the person who does their hair to, to do it in such a way that it's much, uh, uh, the, 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 where there's much less tension than is uh, normally, normally done. Um, and when you, when you catch these patients in more acute phase, sort of in the, within the first six months of development of this, using uh, anti-inflammatory treatments like intralesional corticosteroids uh, can be useful. And, uh, and as an adjunct, using topical minoxidil uh, can, can increase uh, the, the growth. And so I'll use intralesionals and 2% and or 5% minoxidil to this area. Hair fragility, the woman who comes in with hair of, of, a lot of broken hairs and hair, of vary, hair shafts of varying lengths, often there's a patch of shorter hair right at the back of the scalp. Uh, and when you do a hair pull test, you find that the hair is just so brittle, it just crumbles in your fingers. And uh, this is all characteristic of acquired trichorexis nodosa from overprocessing, if you will, from overexposure to thermal damage or, or, or chemical damage from hair care practices. And on microscopy, not sure if you can really see that on the slide, but the characteristic feature of it looks like two paintbrushes uh, being put together. Uh, and that's, that's the classic feature of uh, trichorexis nodosa on uh, light microscopy. So when handling, uh, when approaching these patients, you want to work with them to minimize the frequency and intensity of either chemical or thermal uh, uh, processing of their hair, depending on the patient. And rather than uh, discontinuing altogether their, their hair care practice, which is usually a hard sell, just compromising and having patients reduce the frequency of the relaxers to every eight to 10 weeks and making sure it's being done by a, by a skilled professional. You want to make sure that they're going to a place where they're careful enough to put the relaxer only on the new growth and not get it on to the all previously straightened hair, which, will, which would then get subsequently weaker and weaker with each exposure of the chemical relaxer and then lead to breakage. Biotin can be useful, it's totally anecdotal, no studies, uh, but the dose I typically recommend is 2,500 to 5,000, even though the slice is 3,000, 5,000 micrograms uh, once a day. And conditioning shampoos are also uh, very useful here. Finally, central centrifugal cicatricial alopecia, or CCCA. This was first described in, in the late 60s uh, and was called hot comb alopecia. It was later renamed follicular degeneration syndrome in the 90s. And then finally, uh, uh, the current term uh, is CCCA. And whatever you want to call it, it's a scarring alopecia that is a primary uh, considered a primary cicatricial alopecia that's predominantly lymphocytic when, when you look at, uh, look at it histopathologically, begins on the crown and spreads outward. And we don't really know uh, uh, much about the, the pathophysiology of this yet. And hair care practices are implicated, but it's controversial as to what role they play. There may indeed be a genetic predisposition, but we don't really know that yet. 
the clear, clear tip off here that this is a scarring alopecia is when you, when you catch it in an earlier case like this where it's not that obvious, you, you part the hair, you look at the scalp, and you see a sort of shiny appearance to the scalp surface, and you see a reduction in the openings, in the follicular openings. And so that's your tip off that this is a scarring alopecia. You usually don't see much erythema, you usually don't see scale. You might sometimes feel bogginess when you, when you palpate. When it's uh, more extensive, it's more obvious to make the diagnosis. And unfortunately, many of our patients wait this long before they come in and see us, where it's so extensive that there's not, as, not a whole lot we can do. The first step uh, is uh, to work with, uh, 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 work with them to modify any hair care practices which may be contributing to the problem. And you begin by taking a detailed history of the hair care practices. And so that's where having an understanding of these is very useful. When you do see, when you do see uh, um, scale or pustules, uh, culturing them, of course, and treating appropriately. But most importantly, a, a biopsy is going to be the key diagnostic uh, um, procedure. And the reason for the biopsy is to rule out other forms of scarring alopecia, such as this. in this case, this patient had discoid lupus, uh, although she was convinced that this arose after having a quote-unquote bad perm, and it was a sort of in the vertex area and clearly scarring. But on closer inspection, very difficult to see on the photograph, but on the edges you can make out some follicular plugging and a little uh, follicular hyperpigmentation, which was suggestive of discoid lupus, and that's what the biopsy showed. The other purpose of the biopsy is also to get a sense of how active the condition is, how intense is, how severe is the inflammation, uh, or is it largely burnt out? And that can help influence what treatment you're gonna, gonna select. When it comes to where to do the biopsy, it's important not to go uh, straight for the uh, areas with uh, end-stage scarring. Don't go straight in the right in the center. That's not going to be very helpful. All you're going to get is a report that just says end-stage scarring alopecia. You want to go to an area where it's still where there's still some chance for uh, some ongoing activity has, uh, from an inflam inflammation point of view. And so you want to go towards the, the border or an area where you can still make out some hair follicular openings. Uh, so a combination of areas where there's scarring and there's still some, some follicles right on the edge is, is, the, is your best bet. And histopathologically, there are no clear, there's no specific uh, features of CCCA, but a collection of features that can help support the diagnosis, including uh, what Len Sperling here in uh, DC uh, describes, uh, has described a lot in the literature, is premature desquamation of the inner root sheath, which is desquamation of the inner root sheath below the level of the isthmus level of the follicle. Uh, and uh, predominantly lymphocytic inflammation all around the follicle which ultimately leads to uh, fibrosis. So you get your diagnosis back of some description that, that's compatible with CCCA, and you're kind of left with the uh, dilemma of what to do next. And uh, it, what I do, uh, as far as my goals of treatment, I explain to the, the patient that this is a scarring alopecia. Unfortunately, the areas where they're scarring, we can't bring those follicles back. However, what we're going to do is try and stop, do everything we can to stop the progression of the hair loss and prevent further scarring. We want to promote as much hair growth as possible in the areas where the follicles are not scarred. So in areas with viable follicles, we want to promote as much growth so they can get better coverage. And we can certainly relieve symptoms, as many patients do describe some pruritus or, uh, or, or uh, um, tingling of their scalp in association with this, and that's easy to control. 
And in order to achieve this goal, we want to work on decreasing any potentially exacerbating factors. This is where modifying hair care practices is important. And initiate a treatment regimen that's based on your clinical and your, and your pathology. So when there's no inflammation pr present on the biopsy, when it looks sort of largely burnt out, or um, just working on uh, reducing uh, hair care practices, which may be damaging, and using topical minoxidil to help stimulate growth in non-scarred areas is useful. I use 5% minoxidil off-label in, in, in women uh, for this. When inflammation is present, you do the same, but you also want to add anti-inflammatory treatment in the form of corticosteroids. I do intralesionals mostly, 5 milligrams per, per ml, or topical class 1 or class 2 corticosteroids applied to the periphery and the, uh, and the, the center of the, uh, of, of the area of involvement. Oral antibiotics for very extensive cases where intralesionals wouldn't really be practical, uh, primarily tetracycline antibiotics, and doxycycline is my preferred one in this instance, and uh, using either anti-inflammatory dose doxy, like 40 milligram extended release uh, uh, doxycycline, or uh, regular dose doxycycline if that's not, not, approved, not covered, uh, you, you can use that, but being mindful of the GI side effects. When there's end-stage scarring or the, the patients fail the more conservative approaches, this is where you can have to uh, talk about the use of uh, camouflage techniques and wigs and possibly hair transplantation in, in, good, in, in those that are good candidates for that. This is an example of a patient who responded to such an approach. On the left is how she presented. A biopsy was done, supported the diagnosis of CCCA. There was moderate lymphocytic inflammation at the time. I chose to, to treat her with intralesional five, uh, triamcinolone, five milligrams per cc. She did that for six months, along with minoxidil, 2% in this case, even though I, I usually use 5%. You can see uh, that she's had considerable regrowth in non-scarred areas, so much so that she's got better coverage. She's even formed new locks in the, in the center of the area. And so, not perfect, but this is, a, this is a success in that we stopped progression and got better coverage. And so that's the goal. So with that, I'm gonna close, and I'm happy to open it up to any questions if there's time. Thank you. Do we have time for questions? Yes? Okay. Mm -hmm. With your hydroquinone lightening agents, do you have any difference in your regimen for your African-American patients than you do your Caucasian patients? Do you limit it differently or dose it differently for them? Okay, so I'll just repeat the question. Are there any differences when using hydroquinone in a dark skin patient compared to a lighter skin patient in terms of dosing regimen and concentration, and et cetera? Uh, and my answer, my quick answer is no. I don't have any differences in the way I use hydroquinone. In general, I'll try and limit the, the duration of use to, uh, duration of continuous use to six months or under. Uh, I, wanna, I don't want to overuse it for extended periods of time because of the rare uh, risk of exogenous ochronosis. So I try and limit it to six months or under in anyone. Yes? I was going to ask basically the same question because we do see sometimes, you know, where we have individuals that have used those hydroquinone products and have, you know, hyperpigmentation all over, you know, their cheeks or wherever they were using it because they were using it, kept using it, and uh, um, didn't know what to do to, you know, treat that or reverse that? 
I didn't know if you had any insight or any input for that because the hydroquinone yeah, we do caused have, that. Yes, we, so we have to be mindful that hydroquinone is, can be irritating. It is, it, 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 it is an irritant. And so advising patients to do a test spot before they go forward with larger area treatment is useful. So a test spot under the chin or behind the, the ear or some other place where it's not obvious uh, just to make sure that they tolerate it. Um, in terms of another thing that is a potential issue is when you're treating these smaller hyperpigmented macules like is characteristic of acne, uh, the, the type of hyperpigmentation associated with acne, it's very difficult to apply the hydroquinone only to the, hyper, to the macule, to hyperpigmented macule and not normal skin. So you, you can end up with that halo of hypopigmentation. And so I suggest uh, um, focusing only on the larger, more persistent hyperpigmented macules in those settings and using a Q-tip, uh, cotton tip applicator, to carefully apply the hydroquinone directly to the, to the macule and, not, and trying to avoid perilesional skin as much as possible. But warning patients regardless that there's a possibility of, of uh, a halo. And, and when that happens, it's self-limited, just having them stop the hydroquinone. Uh, within uh, a few weeks, uh, it, the color goes back to normal, so reassuring them. Is there any particular brand of perm or straightener that you recommend your patients use or that's been tried to cause the least amount of damage? Yeah, that's a question I get a lot from patients they, uh, in terms of, okay, so what perm can I use? Is there a particular brand that you recommend? And I, I don't have any specific brand recommendations because I, I, you know, I, I, I have to admit my limitations and, you know, not being a hair stylist or not being, you know, a specialist in, in, in I'm not a beautician and so forth, so I can't be familiar with all the various uh, 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 relaxers that are out there. So I focus more, less on the, uh, on the actual brand, but more on the technique. And it's, it's about, base, first of all, they should be going to a, a salon and doing it by a skilled professional. Not at home, not by their cousin or their sister or whatever. And it should be uh, applied carefully, the relaxer should be applied carefully only to the new growth, only to that pr the proximal hair that, that's, that's, uh, that has not been treated previously. The scalp should be based with a petrolatum uh, uh, ointment uh, uh, to protect the scalp from exposure of the relaxer. And then the contact time of the relaxer should be carefully monitored. It, there really should not be any, uh, the, any stinging or burning from the application should be minimized. So I emphasize those concepts and I, I don't really go into the brand, the, the, the specifics, because they all, they're all potentially damaging. They're all, all the lye ones are sodium hydroxide, the no lye or guanidine hydroxide. They all damage the, the, the hair if, uh, to some extent, and they're going to damage it more with overexposure. So I focus on the technique and, and make sure that they, they're going to a place that is, is careful. If you have a lot of these patients, if you have that, that kind of, if you have a practice that is, has a lot of uh, alopecias in African American women, it's useful. It's worth the, your time to actually try and identify various good salons or good, good stylists that are careful and, are, and do, uh, use these optimal techniques and then being able to recommend your patients to them. So that's what I do. I have a few places that I can recommend my patients to. Okay. Um, I have a question that's a little bit off your topic of presentation today and it's about um, real in-stage vitiligo. Um, had a couple patients that um, I've been trying to get um, Mequinol, can't get it anymore and I wondered um, if you have any tips. Just real limited face, hands, a few areas, and the people want to just go ahead and bleach it out. Oh, I see. So those cases of vitiligo that are, are extensive, so much so that 
that you know, sort of over 90% body surface area type patient mm -hmm. where you may want to bleach out. Yeah, I've not had a patient who has agreed to that approach in a long time. And my understanding is that the monobenzyl ether of uh, hydroquinone or, or uh, Benequin is, uh, is, is, is no longer available. Uh, so I actually don't know what the alternatives are. Uh, that you can consider. I would, I would basically have to just use uh, compounded higher strength uh, hydroquinone, you know, 6%, 8% to those areas, because I believe that it's, it, you can't get Benequin anymore. Thanks. That's all I could find. Okay. When, when treating PAHP with, you said with the um, glycolic acid peels, could you speak to like how long, how many treatments do you get good results with, and how long do you leave the glycolic acid on? You said 30 or 50% is a good place to start. Sure. So glycolic acid peels, I typically begin with 30%, as you said. And um, my goal is to have a contact time of approximately four minutes. But rather than having a cookie cutter approach and, and just setting your timer and making everybody go to four minutes, I, I, I discourage that. But rather, case staying in the room with the patient, monitoring what degree of, of stinging, burning, erythema that they're experiencing, and neutralizing early if you have to. So on the very first peel in someone with, with, who is quite sensitive to it, it's not uncommon for me to neutralize it after just a, a minute and a half, two minutes in the, in the first treatment uh, uh, if, if they're just not tolerating it. So I think that's what's most important to really tailor it for the individual patient's tolerability. But ultimately, four minutes is my, is my target. That's what I set the timer to. That's what I, my target contact time. And do you explain um, a certain number of treatments they can expect to, I know it's tailored for each patient, but for their expectation of how many treatments they might have to come back for and how often? Yeah, so I, I, I tell them that, it, that certainly one is not, not enough to produce any noticeable improvement in hyperpigmentation. Rather, a series of four to six is a typical number. So that's the number I always uh, I, I tell, I tell patients. And in terms of the interval, uh, I do them uh, every two to four weeks. Um, in the acne patient who has active acne and hyperpigmentation, they're usually on a retinoid. And because I keep telling them to stop the retinoid one week before, and we actually want them to use the retinoid for the acne uh, and the hyperpigmentation, I'll use uh, the peels uh, once, a, once a month rather than every two weeks. Otherwise, they'll never get to use the retinoid. Thank you. Um, and in that acne patient with PIH, I prefer the salicylic acid peels because the salicylic acid peel will also be useful for the acne as well, since it's comatolytic. Um, I actually have two questions. The first is those who have hyperpigmentation and use excessive hydroquinone, when they get the ochronosis, where's that pigmentation from using the excessive product? Um, do you have any treatment options for that or what? Or is it just an in-stage thing that can't be done? Nothing can be done. Yeah, so questions about treatment of exogenous ochronosis. Unfortunately, we, we really don't have uh, effective treatment options for it. I mean, you will see in the literature a few different lasers being used with very uh, mixed or modest uh, uh, success or, or, or no success. Um, if I was faced with my next case of exogenous ochronosis, the, the, the treatment modality that I would try, and I've not done this yet on, on exogenous ochronosis, but I would consider using a non-ablative fractional laser uh, to, to try and get at that, uh, uh, that exogenous ochronosis. Because I do have a lot of success with, with that laser modality for treating other, uh, other conditions, including acne scarring and 
and, and recalcitrant melasma. So I would try it for that. But this is totally, I'm totally uh, uh, just uh, pontificating. I mean, I have not done that yet. Okay. So unfortunately, our treatments are not optimal. Okay. And then the second question is, I have a lot of patients who have end-stage um, scarring alopecia, CCCA, and so when we do like a trial of the Kinolog injections and things like that, but when it's all said and done, they're asking about hair transplantation, and I know that a lot of, it's limited for a lot of African Americans because of the potential of scarring. Do you have anybody that you would recommend where I, because they will literally travel to go get That's the right. hair transplantation. That's right. Yeah, here in, D, in the D.C. area, the, most, the, the person I recommend is uh, Valerie Cal Dr. Val Valerie Callender in uh, Mitchellville, uh, Maryland, I believe. And uh, I actually have patients that come from New York, and they, they, they make the trip down here uh, uh, for that. Um, but uh, that's the, the person I know. I can't really, I don't know too many other people outside, in different parts of the country. But uh, basically, it's identifying a transplant uh, person in your area that has a, uh, uh, a fair amount of uh, African-American patients and, and has had success with that. And at various meetings like the AAD and others, I've had people in the audience tell me, come up to me and tell me, tell me about their own personal experiences with hair transplantation in their area. So there are people all around the country that, uh, that uh, have had success with, uh, with treating African-American women with scarring alopecia. I'm from Chicago, and I've done a lot of Google searches, and I have not found anyone who's had like a lot of success with it. So, um, I when I say a lot of success, I mean that has to be put into context. Yeah. Of course, uh, okay. the success rate with the scarring alopecia, in terms of the the, the graphs actually taking, is, is is less, as you know, and uh, um, depending on how extensive the 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 area is, the you know the amount of cosmetic improvement is 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 limited. But nevertheless. A modest improvement can can still be very can, can be perceived as a as a great success by 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 the patient who's just looking for as much improvement as possible. I have two questions. Um, one, when treating acne Dallas, apart from adding intralesional steroids, do you do anything different than you would for uh, pseudofolliculitis? So acne Dallas nuci. Mm -hmm. So um, when it comes to acne Dallas nuci, when the Papules, the keloidal papules on the occiput are large enough, sufficiently large, to warrant uh, an intralesional injection. I will treat aggressively with, with uh, intralesional uh, triamcinolone. I, I, I will use high, pretty high concentrations. And what I mean by that is 20 milligrams per cc, even up to 40 milligrams per cc, but very low volumes, but right directly into, into, uh, in, into the keloidal papules. When it's more diffuse and smaller papules that wouldn't be amenable to injection, I'll use a topical uh, class one uh, corticosteroid, especially in a foam vehicle, easy to apply, very good penetration. Uh, and I use it on two weeks on, two weeks off basis. Um, uh, when there's secondary infection, as there often is, uh, using a topical clindamycin uh, to, uh, to eliminate any second, uh, colonization with staph aureus um, is, is, is also useful. Uh, what else? I'm, I'm not a big fan of topical retinoids for the area, although that is used by, by many, uh, many colleagues. I just have not found that to be successful. So, um, and in, to a very limited extent, laser hair removal actually has, is something that's, that's been tried and, uh, and, and can be useful in, in patients uh, who have uh, recalcitrant AKN. Of course, larger, larger uh, nodules, you know, the kind that have multiple papules that have coalesced into a nodule or, uh, and, and are just resistant to treatment, surgical approaches can be useful and you can have that uh, excised 
an, an ellipse that's down to the uh, dermal sub-Q junction and left to heal by secondary intention. It would be the option there. And um, with spironolactone, have you tried it for any sort of hair loss or had any success with that? Spironolactone mm -hmm. and hair loss? Mm -hmm. Yes, I've, I've not had uh, any success using uh, spironolactone and, uh, uh, for androgenetic alopecia uh, or, well, that would be the only type of alopecia where I'd consider using it and I've not had any success with it. Okay, well, thank you.